Hello and welcome to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. I'm your host, Steve Smith, and if you're new to this podcast, I'm going to share lots of great information with you, going to give you pieces of information about how to improve your golf by understanding the golf course and the surfaces that you're playing off. Also, I chat to all sorts of different people within the backgrounds of golf courses and golf course construction and golf course design and their maintenance, talking to superintendents, architects. Uh, There's going to be also history about golf courses in Australia, all sorts of great information. Hopefully, you enjoy the conversations along the way and some of the little documentary episodes that I've got and some history pieces. Today, we're talking golf course construction. This is episode number 49. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast and an interview series that, uh, oh, look, I do all sorts of interviews with all sorts of different people in the background of golf and golf maintenance and construction and design and architecture and so on. This is something new. I've never had someone from this background and currently working in this field on the podcast, and I really wanted to give you an insight into how golf courses actually get built and come to be before we as greenkeepers often grasp them and then you guys play on them as, as players. So without further ado, I want to welcome along to the podcast Nathan Bradbury from Golf Spectrum. G'day, Nathan. Welcome to the podcast, mate. G'day, Steve. Thanks for having me. Mate, uh, really appreciate your time. I just want to sort of, and, and I will clarify, this isn't the Nathan Bradbury that's the superintendent of Eastlake here in Sydney. I know that I've been asked that question before. Have you ever come across that one? Uh, about a million times, but and unfortunately, they keep ringing him and they don't keep ringing me. So if they want to start ringing me in in, in the future, that'd be awesome. That'd be good, mate, because uh, you're more inclined to be able to help people, people build golf courses and, and do work constructing parts of their courts. There's no doubt about it. So, mate, let's, let's introduce who you are. You're the director of Golf Spectrum. This is a, a construction business and, and in a key part of what you do is you work on, on golf courses and, and bringing them from design to build or you do changes within clubs when they want to do adjustments to p- parts of a golf course and the like of that sort of stuff. Tell us a bit about what Golf Spectrum is and how you started the business, mate. Uh, well, Golf Spectrum was started back in 2014 after a long period of working for others um, in the industry, and I'd been in the industry since I was 14 years old. So uh, I was given an opportunity that was extending for me to be able to go out on my own and start my own business as Golf Spectrum and uh, branch out into my own types of developments and things like that. Um, we've been established now for just on eight years, and it's been a very, very wild journey the whole time. I think, um, you know, I, I, I will say out loud that I've known you for close to that amount of time. I think I know I, know I did some work with you. Um, I think it was East at Maitland, uh, the golf course up there, doing some work when you were doing some remodeling around the course here. That was quite a number of years ago now. But uh, tell us, you know, it is a wild ride owning a business in general, but in golf, it's a very competitive marketplace. There's high pressure on delivering timeframes, quality. You know, you've got lots of people that are your boss, no doubt, when you walk into a golf course. You know, there's, there's a lot of things happening there. It, it has been a wild ride for eight years. And sort of how have you found your feet a little bit to establish a name? Has that been hard? Yeah, it's been very tough. I mean, things didn't go to plan when we first started our business back in 2014, the the project that we had lined up to move into wasn't quite what it was and you know DAs and stuff um, played a big part in not that project getting off the ground 
in a fast pace or manner and still to this day they they fight that so um, we have done bits and pieces at that golf club in the past we've built six holes there now at Bayview Golf Course down there in the nice northern beaches part of Sydney not far um, from where I am actually there you go no it's similar probably to where we first met um, you're a local to that area and you sort of knew that development and what was going on down there and that's when we first uh, made made communications with each other and then it branched out from like you said to you coming up and helping us with some turf installation up at East Maitland Leisure on the 36 bunker uh, rebuild we did up there after we built uh, two that, greens that, and, a, and a pond. That's um, right, that's right. And f- moving forward from there, you know, it is a niche market and you look bump into a lot of people at the pub or at the gym or, at, you know, local sporting facilities um, once you have kids and stuff and when they ask you what you do. Um, they, they're sort of shocked by it because they've never really heard it before. But if you've been in and around the industry, you'll know it's a very, very competitive market. There'd be, at this point in time, I'd say at least seven um, competitors out there that you know we go head to head with on a regular basis in pricing work and and you know negotiating with golf clubs on why we're better to be chosen from than them guys. So it's very niche. It's very competitive. It is hard. You can't solely rest your laurels on golf course construction works, which I learnt uh, very early on in my you know career as I started my own business. So yeah, we have a another part to our our business, which is also civil construction and plant hire, which keeps us you know busy in the interim as well. And of course, we know that the golf industry is very up and down, and and we've seen that you know happen i suppose at the back of of covid with or during covid even with waves of an influx of golfers but then money is very much in sort of reflection of that with clubs and then how they can work on their courses physically and how they can improve them if they if they get an architect involved or they've got a long-term plan there's often pauses in different stages and you mentioned bayview and i can speak for that as well it's not far from where i live but there's stage one and then there might be a, a, a gap between two and then a longer gap for three depending on you know so you're often moving around a project will start, then stop, and then you can come back almost, you know, even seven, eight, nine plus years later, can't you? You can, and then you can also be dealt a cruel blow and have, you know, general managers, superintendents, and the likes of people, boards, committees, change hand in that time too, and and decide yep. to go in a different direction and change designers and change construction companies, and and then you know that that job that you did have bubbling along in the background you know, that you would come backwards and forwards to and, and those types of things sort of disappear into the, the wilderness and be someone else's um, key project. So um, it is quite difficult. Um, you need to have your finger on the pulse a lot. But in the same token, I'm very old school. I don't, you know, like to go in and harass people. Um, you know, I leave it open for them to make their interpretations on why they believe um, we're, a, we're a good suit for them. I can sell my business to them. Um, in many ways, shapes or forms. Um, however, at the end of the day, it's their discretion on who they choose to do those projects. And hopefully when you know we're selling ourselves, we can show them that you know everything we do is world class. Uh, there's no stone left unturned, even if it costs us a little bit of extra money out of our own pockets. We make sure that everything's delivered. And, you know, and that's a key point with any business. It's it's being able to talk about what you've done, show off the, the products, the end results. And 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 it's it's people dealing with people. Business deals are often people and people, really. And you can get a sense of who people are. And, 
like you mentioned, personnel changes in business makes it hard for that continuation. And those things can be taken away from you. But you talked about yourself. You're a bit more of an old school sort of way of, of, of doing, you know, talking to people and dealing with people and getting projects done and completed. Let's go into a little bit of your background, mate. Let's move away from, you know, the competitive side of life and let's start to, to hear about what where you've come from and sort of what you've worked on as part of Golf Spectrum, you and your team. So you, you, I know that you've got a golf greenkeeping maintenance background in you. Let's start there. How did, how did Where did you come from? I first started greenkeeping when I was 14 years old, uh, not too um, straight out of school pretty much. I finished year 10 and moved straight into the industry. I was fortunate enough to be given an apprenticeship at Macquarie Links Golf Club. And, and at that's the- a great, great track to start off with, mate. Oh, it was. And at the time, they only had six holes. So they were still heavily under construction. Um, something that yeah. I had ne- never seen before, the construction side of things. I'd done a lot of work experience as a greenkeeper growing up across the road from Studley Park Golf Course down there in Camden. Oh, yep, yep. Um, but with, a, you know, my father and, and the likes and my pop were always around machinery, um, earth moving equipment. So I had been privy to that in the past, but I'd never sort of seen a golf course constructed. So when I was fortunate enough to be given an opportunity as an apprentice at Macquarie Links. I was, um, you know, lucky enough then to be involved in the, the last 12 holes of construction there. Wow, that would have been pretty exciting because it, it had a big name. It had a big brand behind Macquarie Links starting. To, I mean, it was pretty assured to be something special, wasn't it? Oh, it was. It was, a, it was absolutely a beautiful place to work. Um, there was some really special holes out there, and I think there still is today. They held a New South Wales Open at one stage. Um, yep. And yet to, to see that place grow over my, my apprenticeship was really good, was really cool too. I was still pretty young at the time, so I was still, you know, kicking around as a normal teenager does and, you know, doing what teenagers do. But however, you know, to learn all that and the craft of some of the people that were there and to still see them now in the industry, I think Pete Rybell was the shaper there back when I was um, first initially started there and I think he just finished up a stint there at Kalara about a year and a half, two years ago when they went through their rebuild there. So, you know, I'm 37 now and I started that, you know, back then when I was 14. So, and he's still kicking around as a very leading shaper and a reputable bloke as that. There you go. And that gives you an idea to, to people listening, sort of if if this is a field you want to venture down, that, you know, there is a bit of longevity in that. You know, you it's it's... I suppose it, it is hard on your body, mate. I've worked with you. I know how hard it can be. That made me knackered the whole time we're up at East, mate. Let's have a bit of surfing around the bunkers. That was something else. But it, if you build a reputation like anything in business, I suppose you get a chance to move around, work on some special places and create some special things over a career as well. And and for you starting off at Macquarie Links, and anyone who's not sure, Macquarie Links is in the sort of southwestern parts of Sydney, down there that Campbelltown, Camden area. Uh, loosely in the southwest, and it's got a wonderful name, great reputation. Nelson Hayworth designed from memory, um, and I think it might even be the only one of theirs that I'm aware of um, in Australia. But, uh, mate, what a great place to start and get experience in construction from the get-go. A lot of greenkeepers don't don't have that opportunity. No. That's pretty good. It, it, it was unreal. Uh, yeah, not, you're right. Not many people do get that opportunity. And um, it definitely changed my thoughts on my career path moving forward from there. I mean, I always wanted to be a greenkeeper. Um, but, you know, like everyone says, there's no money in greenkeeping either. So 
um, you know, being a very hands-on person, loving my machinery and, and being around that all the time, it definitely was, you know, what fueled the fire and the passion to be more involved in the golf course construction stuff. And and it is a green keeping. It's a it's very much a lifestyle choice. First, I, I think and personally, you know, you can make a living out of it, but it's um yeah, you got to there's things around that you got to work out in your life which you want to take with you, because uh, it can be it can be very good, uh, but it's also a tough road to start. But you've got that background in machinery with your family, your father, your grandfather, like you mentioned, you had that there in the background, seeing construction being part of it what what happened after macquarie links where did you go from there uh from macquarie links i actually went to a landscaping and uh lawn mowing company over there in balkham hills called emerald um did a short stint there and then found myself you know still hungry for the golf course stuff and was fortunate enough at the time to um you know be given a role out at new south wales golf club where i spent i think it would have been close to two years as an irrigation uh, sorry as a spray technician wow um, and then as I moved further out there, I learned more about the Ohio State program and a few guys that had done it and spoken to Gary Dempsey about it at the time. And um, he put me in the right direction to speak to Mike Orloff um, over there in the States. And um, sorry, I don't think it's Mike Orloff. I think it's someone else. Um, O'Keefe. No, O'Keefe, that's it, Mike O'Keefe. That's it, because I know I've recently interviewed Mick Pascoe from Noosa Golf Club up there and uh, on Keeper of the Green segment of this podcast, and and he's one who's done the Ohio State and, and travelled around through uh, through uh, O'Keefe over there. And, you know, it's uh, look, I'm hearing more and more stories about people taking on this opportunity to, to go over to the States. So you did that. That's great. Where did that take you? Uh, I was very fortunate at the time, uh, unfortunate for the poor person that had to fly back home. His, his father had a bit of illness, but um, he had to pass in his spot. So I was fortunate at the time to be in the right place at the right time. And I got um, I got sent to Oakmont Country Club in 2000 and back end of 2005, start of 2006. Wow. Now that's yeah. <laughs> that's an impressive first stint over there. It was. It was. It was a bit of a shock to the system though. Never left the country. First time out of the country. and they, you sort of roll in there and you expect to be, things to be similar to what they're like when they're back at home. You know, I've come from, you know, being on all types of machinery. I've done my apprenticeship. I've hung off whippersnippers and flymos and all those types of things. I'd worked my way up through the food chain. But when you got back, you know, to somewhere different that they didn't know a lot about you, you know, you're back down the bottom. You had to work your way back up. So that was a little bit of a culture shock. Took a while to get sure. used to. But, um, yeah, I was yeah. fortunate enough to do... A stint there at Oakmont. Um, they were coming into preparations for the 2007 US Open, so there was a lot going on there. Wow! Um, and a lot of the tree removal towards the back end of that that everyone would probably know about. If you if you ride into your golf, they moved moved over 5,000 trees off that golf course. Um, Gee, uh, I'll I'll throw interject there, mate, because I know we hear about, and I'm going to use Royal Sydney in, in Sydney at the moment, Royal Sydney Golf Club, and people are jumping up and down. And I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or indifferent, but everyone has an opinion. They're talking about 300 trees or something. You're talking about 5,000. Yeah, 5,000 trees. I think the last <laughs> count was over there, so it was pretty gnarly, and they weren't small trees either. So, um, wow, me. definitely took it back to its original uh, creation and what it was designed for. Uh, that golf course and it yeah definitely worked out um to be a very beautiful place to work um but we did the um sort of fall there and then in the fall we went down to st simon's island down in jacksonville and we worked on uh sea island me and another uh fellow that i was traveling with at the time 
Um, and we were fortunate enough to work there at, a, at to some very prestigious golf clubs there on the island. Um, wow. And then from there, we were fortunate enough that we got the call up to go back to Oakmont for another full stint of the uh, season. And we ended up doing the 2007 US Open there when Uncle Cabrera won on the last hole. Wow. I remember watching that on telly. I didn't really, didn't know you then, obviously, but you were part of the prep, part of leading into that tournament. What an incredible experience that must have been. Yeah, greens were super quick that week, that year. I think they were 15.9 on the stimp at one stage before the tournament. They had to dial them back down to 12s. Um, and, yeah, when I remember it, uh, it was on the third day and we were, um, we'd finished all our morning prep and one of my jobs after morning prep was to carry the hose for one of the lads that was watering greens. And as we were walking up to the 18th, the crowd had already started to build. And um, we got an almighty big cheer, bigger than what Tiger got when he walked up the last hole because we were watering <laughs> the greens to slow him down. So, yeah, it was a oh. good moment. Wow. What, what that, That's an – and these are the things – I love to hear these parts of people's stories in, in green keeping and golf, you know, in construction like yours, in architect. I love hearing the stories of people in their career and life journey that, that this industry has taken them to. And, and this is part of the Ohio State – being Oakmont, did you? I mean, that must have been a pretty special, you know, pinch myself moment to see a, a, in the middle of a crowd like that, in the middle of a tournament like that. That's that's something very few people get to experience, if even if they're paying for the ticket to be in the hill in the stands. Yeah, it's one thing to sit in the grandstand; it's another thing to be already inside the fence line and walk around and be, you know, see the atmosphere and stuff as it all unfolds and. You know, that, that moment there on the 18th green, I'll never forget it. It's only a small little thing. People might think that it's nothing, but um, it was a pretty cool moment. And I guess the other highlight of that that, that tournament was uh, watching Aaron Badley uh, on the last day lead, and unfortunately he wasn't able to get the job done. But to be able to walk inside the ropes down the, you know, the first hole with Australian flag over your shoulders is a pretty proud moment. That's absolutely amazing, mate. What a great story. What a great story. That's awesome. So, okay, you've, you've worked a couple of stints at Oakmont. You've done the Open. You've done this is pretty high-profile, special, lifelong memory stuff. Where did you go from there? I'm curious to know. Uh, I went to the International Golf Club up in Boston and, in, and interviewed with a fellow by the name of Dick Bader. Um, and I got offered an assistance uh, superintendent's position up there but prior to that I, I had to fly home because my visa was running out so I still started kept working on that in the background but it was around the same time as the GFC hit oh. and, um, <clears throat> I was very keen to still go back over but like anything I got home and I you know got back around some friends and family and it was sort of hard to leave again I, I pretty much had two lives I had my you know all my friends over there for two two and a half years that I was kicking around with and then come back home and you know I decided that I didn't really want to leave I I actually ended up back at New South Wales Golf Club just as a casual um, okay. and at that point in time um, Darby Muller was doing a lot of work there from a company called Golf Shapes and I sort of still had that construction stuff in my blood and I, I sort of hit him up for a job. Now and there's he, an established name in the industry Darby Muller. Yeah and his words to me were he was going on holidays over to Ireland and he said if when he came back from Ireland, I had my truck license. Um, uh, he would give me a job. So I had four weeks to pull my finger out. And by the time he got back, I had my truck license and he had no reason why not to give me a job. Because I'd done what he <laughs> there, you go. 
there you go, mate. Well, that's that's the definition of having a go. Is yeah. you get given an opportunity, and you're just like, you know what? Let's do it again. You've just taken the bull by the horns, and uh, and and there are you know people that might miss those opportunities in life, but you you saw it and you thought that's it. A Derby, I know Derby because he did some of the greens for us at Katoomba. He was building our stuff when I was super at Katoomba Golf Club. So I've known Derby for you know since '04. I think it was or '05. Um, but there you go. So you so you got to start with Derby. Yeah, got to start with Derby, and I'll be forever grateful for that. It got me back in the game. Um, at the same time, um, you know, the work was he was fairly busy most of the time, but the work was a little bit inconsistent sometimes. And uh, at the time, I was building some bunkers for him down at Shell Harbour Golf Club. They were they were struggling down there. They'd had a, a maintenance crew in there and then a super and, and things like that. And the golf club wasn't going too well, didn't look too flash. It had only been open for about three to four years prior to us um, sort of rebuilding the bunkers there. And um, at the time, um, Derby didn't have too much on. And um, the uh, head chief from the council was down there one day and he sort of knew my background because we'd been talking over the length of the project. And um, the council were looking to take it back over and, and when they did, they, they locked everyone out and they gave me a call and, and uh, asked me if I'd come down there and be the super. Wow. And, okay. Um, is that, I'm curious before we, we go any further with that, is that, I don't know that region very well. Is that the, what we call the links at Shell Cove now, or is it a different place? That's what you call it. Would, everyone would know as the links Shell Cove down there. Oh, there okay. Same course. Uh, okay. Off the old Shell Harbour Road there down near the Dunmore Tip. Yeah, right. Okay. So that's, yeah, we, there is, uh, you know, that, that's garnering a pretty good name these days. They're pushing out hard with a, with a good name and, and trying to get their brand out there to get people attracted to it. So just so anyone who knows it recently, they know what it is. So that's where you sort of took on that role as a super after the council took control again. Yeah, I did. I'd, I'd never been an assistant, never done anything. I'm not, you know, you know, super into my book smarts. I'm a, I'm an old school like I said, type of person, I, I learned visually and, um, yeah, threw, my, threw myself in the deep end and became the super of uh, that golf club. And I was fortunate enough at the time, I'd done a fair bit of work with, um, you know, obviously with Derby and I'd learnt, I'd, I'd met a lot of supers around the traps and I met Mark Parker that used to be at Concord uh, way back in the day. And um, he was actually a consultant for the council and the golf club at the time. So I was quite fortunate to be able to sort of have him um, in the background and be able to bounce ideas off and things like that when I took over the role. Yeah, wow. That's that's great support. You've got to have a good support network around you. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are, really. And that, what a great group of people to have close to you that you could work, you know, assist in your, your, your first post as a super. Yeah, it was, and it was a pretty daunting time. I was only 21 at the time, so um, I was still very young, uh, very raw, didn't, you know, I wasn't, up to speed with a lot of things that a lot of other guys were but you know if there's anything that I've been taught and I was always bred into it at young ages you know hard work and a good work ethic will get you there over the line eventually and you know that's what we did we built a good crew down there um, we brought the place back up to a really high standard and um, the place was absolutely humming before I left unreal what an impressive start mate that's that's a great thing to hear I didn't realize that that was how you got into that space there so when did you finish up at, at Shell Harbour, Shell Cove, whatever we want to call it, and where did you go to? I think I finished up at the Lynx at about 2010. Um, okay. And from there at the time, McMahon's were building a golf course at Bingara Gorge there. 
and um, I was so keen to get back in the construction. Um, and there was sort of just, you know, I didn't find the fulfillment out of being a super. Well, you know, I while I found enjoyment out of bringing the golf course back to a really high standard, it wasn't really something that I enjoyed as much as the construction. So I sort of hounded McMahon's down at the time and um, after some, you know, hounding and stuff like that and, and put myself in front of him, I was fortunate enough to be offered a position there and I actually was anticipating I was going to Bingara to be a foreman up there and a shaper. Um, however, at the time, they just won another project up in, in Cessnock, at, which you now know is from the old Cessnock Golf Club. It's now called Stonebridge. And yeah, which is actually closed down, mate. That's gone. Oh, has it? I didn't, yeah, it? mate. It's um, it closed down. Oh, geez, if I'd have said a couple of years ago now, I'd be pretty close, I think. But it sadly closed up, the old Cessnock Golf Club. Yeah, I knew that they were struggling. I'd been back in there since I started my own business and sort of had a bit of a drive around and a look at some things. But I wasn't aware that it's... Um, yeah, they completely closed its doors there. Yep. Sad to the same fate of my old club at Katuma. It's one that's um, bit in the dust. But there you go. So, yeah. So you were up doing work at Stonebridge at Cessnock, yeah. Yeah, did Stonebridge um, for McMahon's. And then from there, I actually, again, thought I was going back down to um, Bingara to, to be involved in that project as, um, you know, it was close to home. I had a house down the south coast and things like that. But um, same thing that, didn't have it that way um, a, P, a PM had left down in Victoria and I was fortunate enough to be asked to go down to there and I actually went down and finished off the project at Torquay Golf Club for um, Ogilvy and Clayton that McMahon's were involved with at the time Wow! Um, after we finished that one I moved on to um, kick starting off the project out there at Eastern um, for Eastern Golf oh. Clubs out at, at Yering Meadows out there yep yep is that the Norman was that the Norman course Eastern that was a Norman course, yeah. I was I was there for the start of that for the first six odd months, and then that was when I, you know, decided to go out on my own. Mate, that's an impressive background, and probably one that I know I didn't realise you had that much experience in and around, you know, greenkeeping. So I'm looking and and thinking about you at Golf Spectrum, which is how I've known you most of. You've gone to the states in the Ohio State program. You've you've been you've you've prepped for major tournaments. You've worked in New South, one of the best courses in Australia. You're building golf courses for construction companies. You work. I mean, you've got a really. You're not just a shaper, is what I'm hearing from you. Tell me about your background. This is effectively a, a kind of a loose way of looking at your CV. You've got a lot of experience in a level of expectation from people when it's finished, from members, from clubs, from boards, committees, owners. You know, there's a there's a lot of experience in your background behind being someone who can build a golf course and and shape parts of a golf course and work on golf courses in a construction sense. You've got a lot of knowledge in there that I think a lot of people may not have realised either. No, I don't think some people do. Um, it's, it's a hard sell sometimes, but, um, you know, anything that I do speak of, it's because I, I believe that I've got a background in it and, I, and I've got a strong knowledge in it. Um, I think, you know, I'm clicking up almost to 19 years in the trade this year. So, um, and I'm only 37, so I've got a long road ahead of me and I'm always learning still. So, um, yeah, I believe that I've got all the tools and the equipment, um, there to be able to, to give everyone, you know, a piece of it and, and teach them along the way and then also, you know, provide a good service because of that knowledge and that background. Yeah, mate, totally. And and understanding the whole picture 
including well beyond when you finish your work at, at a golf spectrum job and, and handing over to to the the clients whether they be golf clubs or you know or owners of a course that's been built or whatever it might be you know what's going to be expected well beyond when you finish up there so you're sort of doing that level of quality when you're finished when you are to allow for the next, you know, 20, 30, 50 years. That's in essence, you know exactly what's going on beyond that. Yeah, it is key to remember that the show goes on once you've packed up your machines, put them on the float and left and moved on to the next program. You know, them guys are there, you know, for the long haul, longer than what I'm going to be there. So their show goes on. You need to make it, you know, the best you can with what, you know, what cards you dealt, but also think about how it can be maintained afterwards because, you know, you don't want, you know, all your products on for show, but them guys have got to look after it and, and present it for you. No, very, very key, mate. Um, very key. Now, mate, having heard about your background there, like we talked about and your knowledge and, and handing things over, let's let's now delve into a little bit of the construction side of life and, and what your business does now and how that works. And I'm, I'm curious because I think a lot of people out there that, that, that hear about it, see it, they're not sure what goes on in the detail, Give us a bit of an idea first, sort of when it comes to golf course construction, what type of machines are required? Because, look, let's be honest, a lot of people drive past, you know, roadwork construction sites and building construction sites. And, you know, they say cranes, they say loaders, they say graders, they say all manner of different things. But when it comes to golf, what sort of equipment and machinery do you need? Are we talking shovels? You know, is there work got to be done by hand or is there the big graders we see down roads or just excavators? What, what do you have? What do we need? Man, you need everything from a shovel right through to a 30, 40, maybe sometimes depending on the size of the project, 50-ton excavator. Um, there's still a lot of detail work that goes in that you need to do by hand. Um, sometimes those things can be done by, by machine, but quality is key and, you know, sometimes it, the shovel puts a little bit of a finishing touch on something a little bit better than an excavator bucket. But, you know, you've got the likes of sand pros and, and all those types of tools that you use to fully fine finishing, posi tracks, dozers, scoops. Um, you've got moxie dump trucks. You've got all types of, you know, ranges of equipment that you use during the course of a project on any given day. So a really good shaper and a really good operator is someone that can be so diverse that they can go from using just a simple sand pro so then getting on a 14, 15 ton excavator or a D6 dozer and then putting, you know, putting the product on the ground. So, and, and some of those things, and, and if there's any golfers that are interested in this type of stuff that aren't sure, a sand pro is essentially a bunker machine and that, that finishes areas off that, you know, I'm, I'm assuming and I've seen little bits, but we're talking finishing off ready for turfing surfaces or seeding surfaces. Is that when you would use a bunker machine type scenario? Yeah, most bunkers are uh, sand pros, that bunker eggs that you have are, are equipped with a blade on the back or a box. Um, some of us like to use a different type of thing called a scoop um, and puts all your detailed trimming down on the ground. You sort of then after you've put all your final shaping in place with those those types of things, your final finishing, I should say, uh, because most of the heavy lifting is done by your posi tracks and your excavators prior to getting there with the sand pro. Um, and you put all your detailed stuff in there and pretty much getting it ready for um, seeding, solid turfing, stolenizing, uh, and those types of things. And and you talked about, you know, even hand tools. I mean, I, again, we think of construction, even golf course construction on large scale, 
when would you need to when would an operator like i can i can say because i know but i think there's going to be people out there like i said that don't really understand the process so you're bulking stuff out with the big machines then you're getting down to the smaller machines a little bit as you trim it up ready for those surfaces finishing when would you need to use a shovel ah bunker lips when you're putting in those new fancy style bunker lips with that nice you know thick lip um that they've got the grassy edge on now um you know is when you're you know, chipping down with a shovel getting that nice tight shape a uh, nice tight sharp edge ready for you know the turf to flap over you know you want to try and get all those those lips in with a spade if you can uh, because it gives a cleaner sharper look you can get a little bit more intricate tight you know get a few more curves in there that you sort of couldn't squeeze and bend an excavator bucket around so those are the times that you use you know your spade you, know, you do a lot of dummy board work a lot of screeding um, in and around you, you know your greens collars and and putting in a step there so you you know your turf comes in flush with the sand before before seeding, and those are the types of areas you use that you know your hand tools a lot. So I'm walking around a golf course playing golf and and I'm at a green and you know, I've walked past it you know a 15 20 meter long bunker and I've got three around the green. You're saying that there's on that large space considerably large space you know as you're walking past it that there's still a lot of handwork involved in finishing off the golf course product. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And people don't realise what actually goes into those final stages, how many man hours you'll spend hunched over, you know, raking those spots, getting you guys to go back over and, and touch them up. Um, you know, you'll have it perfect when you leave there in the afternoon, ready for turf the next day, but you'll come in at 5am the next morning and you'll, you'll screed it all off again because, you know, you just want, it to be absolutely perfect by the time that turf goes down on it. Um, so, yeah, so there's it, a lot of man hours that go into, you know, around those surfaces, getting them finished off, you know, by hand. And that's the detailed work of the sculptor. Essentially, you're, you're creating a, you know, I, I call it all sorts of different forms of art, but it's essentially a form, land form. It's, a, it's land art. It's a sculpture, whatever you want to call it. You're working with your hands at the end of the day really to produce some of these fine details, aren't you? Yeah, and your eyes, eyes are key. Your eyes pick up. You know, if you're you're a good trained shaper, your eyes pick up on a lot of, you know, indeficiencies that you need to, you know, you need to get with them hand tools and fill in. Because if you don't get them before the turf goes down, you know, to the normal golfer that walks around there, they they won't notice it. But to the trained eye, um, if you don't get that right, and someone with a trained eye walks around there, that'll it'll stand out. Now, and I 100% agree with you, mate. I've been there and I've been part of making those mistakes early in my career when you do things, you know, yourself on a course and, and you're doing some of your own construction in-house or you see other things happen by other people. Um, you know, you really do have to get that level of detail finished. There's no doubt. But I, I'm now thinking, you know, you're talking about, about bunker finishes and things. One that springs to my mind is Twin Creeks in western parts of Sydney, it's got a lot of intricate bunkers and, and there's some big expanse um, of bunkers. And there's plenty of golf courses across the country and indeed the world that, that do that now. There's a lot of detail in bunker construction. And I, I'm not going to say that it's, um, again, right, wrong or indifferent. And everyone has an opinion about but I'm a massive bunker fan, so I love it. I love the art of it. But when it comes to building that art, that, that picture that someone's got, whether it be an architect or whoever it might be, are we getting a little bit ahead? Are we, are we creating 
are we creating too much work trying to get too detailed, do you think? Or is there construction methods now where we're, where we're seeing more natural looking? Is that an easier way to construct bunkers with a more natural feel and, and rougher finishing edges? You're the man doing it. What, what do you say? Uh, they're a man-made, you know, sculpture, if you look at it like that. But in my eyes, they're still a hazard. And, you know, hazards are there to be tough and to be played out and be hard at, Sometimes there's a little bit too too much finessing going on with them. Um, but, you know, the bunker has evolved. You know, you look at all the liners you can put in them now and all the eco bunker and stuff that you can put around, you know, the edges of them to have sustainable lips and things like that. I think, um, you know, the ones out at Twin Creeks are very natural. They look natural. They look like they fit into the landscape. They've been built like that with, you know, the long grasses and stuff. But, some of them now are probably a little bit too clean cut if you if you look at it, but you know it really comes down to architects' discretion and, and what they want, and you know sometimes you just have to build, you know what you're asked to build as well. Oh no, no doubt it's a, you're a piece in the mighty puzzle to build and deliver a golf course. I can certainly appreciate it that that nearly everyone has a boss at the end of the day, but I um I'm thinking about the cost of those things. It, you know, is a natural one more cost effective to build than you know you talked about hand finishing and the amount of work or is it neither here nor there there's just a lot of work in bunkers uh there's a lot of work in bunkers but definitely there's a lot of costs associated with now into making the perfect bunker for golf clubs to um, be able to have something that's sustainable for five to a 10 year period and and also with these extreme weather events that we're we you know we're seeing i mean the biggest thing We've had phone calls about in the last couple of weeks is can you come and have a look at our bunkers and how we make them more weatherproof um, for these severe storm events. I mean, nothing's ever perfect. Nothing you build is ever going to be perfect and be sustainable to, to withhold, you know, 400, 500, you know, 800 millimetres of rain dropping down on it in three days. However, you know, the products that are around now, are, you know, are a long way advanced from, you know, the old school dig a hole in the ground and slap some sand in it, some turf around it and, we call it a bunker and we call it a hazard. So, yeah, they've come a long way, but they are a very expensive exercise. They are indeed, mate. I can speak from experience on that one as much as I know you can, probably certainly more so. So it's not just a get back to the machinery side of things. It's not just, you know, you're over there sitting in the cab of, the, of a 20-ton excavator moving things around all day. There, there is a lot more to being a shaper and, and constructing a golf course, isn't there? Like you said, it's your eyes. It's those details and that detail finish at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. And then a lot of other people that don't know a lot about um, how golf courses are put together, they don't understand the intricacies of, you know, the drainage products that go under greens now and, and all those other little bits and pieces that, you know, go into actually making a golf course. I mean, if you talk to anyone that's sort of just walking down the street and, and kicking stones, I'll just say to you, oh, yeah, you just, you know, you move a bit of dirt around here and slap some grass down, you've got a golf course. Well, no, nah, it's a lot more, you know, a lot more goes into it than that. And people don't realize, you know, how much actually goes into it until you show them photos and they see it firsthand. And and you talk about drainage and, and certainly I know we had a, a significant amount of natural water drainage subsurface problems in the Blue Mountains with different strata layers and different porous um, soils and you know heavier soils and, and water tables and water natural springs and all sorts of stuff happening up there, which we get through the sandstone layers and the like. But there's a, a real expertise in understanding hydrology and how water moves and drains throughout a golf course isn't there 
yeah, there is, and you need to make sure you're aware of that when you're shaping it. You know I mean, it's it's key to, to throw levels on things prior to you, you know, moving dirt to get an understanding on where you need to get the water to move. There's, there's no point going out there and shaping big holes everywhere and then having nowhere for them to drain. Um, you know, it, it doesn't look good. It doesn't play good. And, uh, you know, it's not, the, you know, the required way to do it. Um, you know, and in, you know, your greens, it's come a long way from back when they first started installing drainage in them, you know. You dig up a fair few old school greens now, you'll find old 65 mil, you know, ag pipe, you know, that's been trenched in with pea gravel. Um, and it obviously evolved over time to that change to 90 mil, you know, ag pipe with pea gravel and, and obviously your 100 mil gravel layer. But now we've moved as far as, you know, your lay flat pipes and, and things like that. They're, you know, more cost effective and an easier, faster solution to get drainage into a green than, you know, trenching big holes all through it absolutely there, there is a lot of, and, and a lot of it comes down to being cost conscious and ways to be more cost efficient so that it's more economical to do this work and to to deliver at the end of the day it costs x to deliver a product and if you can do it in a similar fashion or even get better results but you know there's better products out there that might be more cost effective all these things are knock-ons to making a decision to press the green button to do this work really isn't it yeah, that's correct. I mean, about and a lot of it comes down to some superintendents as well. They have personal preference. I mean, you know, I mentioned that I'm a bit old school in the way I do things and I approach things. And some of the superintendents like to stick to the old school, um, tried and true methods that that have worked in you know for many years. They're not keen to adapt to the to the new types of styles and things there are. So you need to be aware of that too. And 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 obviously when you're pricing up jobs, you know, the golf clubs need to be aware of that as well because, you know, yeah, prices do range from contractor to contractor but they also range from you know what type of you know products and sands and and things like that that the super you know prefers to use over what you might you know see as a and and deemed as a good product to use and and it's it's probably a a good point to make that the clubs and and owners or whoever they are that's, that's spending the money to do work or to build a course or whatever it might be when you're getting prices from different contractors, people like yourself and, and other contractors around, you've got to be comparing apples with apples. And that's in the detail, isn't it? Because it's easy to be comparing an apple to an orange and not realizing that it's just got, you know, it's just painted red. Yeah, you find it a lot these days. There's a lot of gray uh, area between, you know, information given between different, you know, different contractors and different contractors. You need to ask a lot of questions and you need to be across it and you need to obviously make it clear on what you're pricing for that reason. You know, if I'm pricing an apple and the other price, person's pricing an orange, of course it's going to be different. Um, we need to, you know, both both sides need to have a good, clear understanding on what they're getting priced, why it's getting priced like that, and then make a, an executive decision on which path they choose. 100%, mate. And I'll say it to save you, you know, potentially upsetting someone that might hear it as a competitor or whatever it might be. I can do this because I've, I know that I've seen things, I've heard stories, they're third hand, other things as well. But I know that it's easy because of the different types of, you know, we could sit there and talk about, you know, sand for a bunker there can be five different types of sand that you can pick. You know, you're talking about sand to finish off a, a greens profile with. You can easily pick from a handful of different types of sands and they will all deliver ultimately a different product. And there's details in how thick you want to do it. There's details you talked about drainage. It. I, I want to stress this to anyone listening that 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 is part of a club or a decision-making team 
that you really need to ensure that you are comparing apples to apples in that detail because you can quite simply make a mistake or overlook something without even realizing it and going, that one's cheaper over there. But at the end of the day, there is a saying that you pay peanuts for a reason because you need to understand what that gives you. And if, if what that cheaper price may give you is what you're still okay with, that's fine and there's nothing wrong with that. But just understanding the detail that that's what you're going to get because you can simply make a mistake of going, well, why isn't that sand and that green working the way we'd hoped? And that wasn't what you were hoping to get. You just need to make sure it's in detail with anything that you're doing. Is you know that's correct, and I know I'm sure that you know you um, in what you do, you you know you can outline those details when someone asks. Yeah, everyone's looking for that competitive edge, Steve. You know, everyone's out there to try and win a job, and you know we all want to compete, and we all want to go hard for every job that we can, and we all want to win every job that we can, and we all want to you know build as many golf courses that we can. But unfortunately, at the end of the day, there can only be one one company that wins out, and and you know if it means that they they've found a sand cheaper and they think they can get across the line and, and price up better, then you know that person might choose to use that as their competitive edge, um, whether or not that's transparent across the board. You'll never know, but, you know, that's just some of the things that happen and everyone's competitive and everyone's just looking for that, that little key thing to get them maybe maybe in the, in the better frame to winning the project over another. For sure. And every business has to try and, like you said, has to find their edge. And uh, all I'm saying to, to anyone listening is to make sure that you compare apples to apples because, you know, being a superintendent, having had contractors on, done construction myself, you really need to make sure you're across that detail. Mate, I, think I, want to move on. Thing, I think the other key thing around that too, just a little bit with the clubs is that, you know, they need to understand that, you know, we're in business to make money as well, you know. Oh, and sure. At, at, sometimes that gets a little bit lost in the translation of pricing up a job and, you know, they lose the fact that we've got to actually make money for a living too. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to be sustainable and be here to keep doing the job. So sometimes in that sense as well, you can be ridiculed. Um, Why is your price so high? Well, you know, our price is high because, A, we need to make money. We can't lose money. And, B, we want to give you the best possible product we can. So we're choosing to use X, Y, and Z over, you know, A, B, C, and D. Well, mate, if, if I'm being honest, I get, yeah, I can agree with you 100% because, yeah, I do a little bit of that now more in the residential space personally at the moment. But uh, like I said, being a super on a golf course, understanding, you know, the value of a contractor, you need to appreciate as, as a client, someone who's going to be paying for the service, you need to understand that you're not dealing with charities. This is not, you know, we're not going around asking people to work for nothing. But at the same time, you need to value what you think they're worth, you know, in the, there's going to be a process and it's usually a long process. You're not dealing with people like yourself, Nathan, for a day. You're dealing with you guys for months. You know, you, you, there's, there's a lot in the relationship that needs to be understood just the same. And that's why you've got to do your homework about, you know, reputation and quality of products and who you're dealing with. There's a lot in this working relationship and there is a value to that. And it's it's usually an intrinsic value that's hard to put a stamp on. But that also is part of you yourself at Golf Spectrum doing what you do. It's also part of, let's say we mentioned before, McMahon's. They do what they do. They're, they've got a value in saying that this is us, this is what we're worth. You've got the same thing. And people have to sit there and judge that 
um, as best they can. But you can't, I hate, I, I say hate strongly, I don't like hearing when people get frustrated by price. I don't think you can sit there and, you know, and say that, oh, they're ridiculously overexpensive. You need to understand what it is that you're getting because it's not just that product at the end of the day when they're finished. It's the detail in it. It's the working relationship. It's quality of service. It's it's. There's even post, you know, information and 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 contact. And you might want to be working with these people again. All sorts of stuff. There's so much in that, isn't there? There is. There is. And sometimes in a in the space of a project. If you are on that project and you can see that there's other stages that come of it, sometimes you just need to sit back and absorb a few things and know that it'll swing in a merry-go-round and you'll get it back in the long run because it's a lot easier to absorb a little bit of pain um, than to go cap in hand um, and ask for more money, you know, if you can see some more works in the near future. Well, and the flip side, you know, and we, we hear about it probably a little bit more in the in the civil construction world and it's recently been on the news where, you know, if a, pro, if a, if a company's running too thin, that it ends badly for the company and then ultimately for the clients. Yeah, so no one ever wants to see that happen. No, it does. And it does end up badly. We're, we're fortunate enough we work in that industry as well with our secondary business that we have. So, um, you know, we're heavily involved in major subdivisions and plant hire and all those um, key areas in the civil construction world with our other side of our business and you know, we can see it firsthand it, it's super competitive out there and you know there's not many margins in the jobs and they can very quickly turn south real quick and as everyone's seen on the news lately it, it's not a very nice thing to see and watch people go under no and there's a lot of people affected and and um but but i go back to my point yeah you know anyone in business is not a charity unless they're labeled a charity so you know everyone's there to make money and make a living and, uh, and and I think people make their decisions on on who they want to deal with based on what they feel the value is. That's Mate, true. I want to I want to move away from that 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 deeper you know uh, conversation about the dollars and cents side of things and the difficulty sometimes in that. I want to go to some of your exciting work and tell us a bit about some of the projects that you've worked on as Golf Spectrum. Um, yeah, so like I mentioned earlier in the piece, we were heavily involved with the, the six holes that were first done at Bayview way back when we first started our business. Um, myself and Graham Patworth were, you know, we're out there working as a team, which has been great. I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of stuff with Graham now. We have a very good working relationship and I love working for him. Gives me a lot of creative license, which is always nice as a shaper. Um, I did a bit of stuff at Pennant Hills Golf Club. I've done um, stuff at East Maitland Leisure Golf Club. I was fortunate enough to build some greens up there, which rolled into a bunker project, which um, I'm known up there as the one-man army because I spent a lot of time up there by myself building those things, and you also came up there and gave us a bit of a hand. Mate, I'll, um, I'll be I'll be a finger help on that one. <laughs> you were there doing everything on your own, but I'll, I'll add to being a finger in that project because I wasn't there for a very long time helping out with some work. But I tell you what, the, the amount of work you got through, I just I just kept shaking my head. I, I think you were you were living on site at the time, in a caravan for a period or something, weren't you? Yeah, I was. It's a, it was definitely a theme of mine. I have a, I had a caravan for a long time and I'd travel around and take that with me and live on site. I'd, build my crews locally or bring people that I knew in to, to give me a hand. So, um, yeah, I lived on site at the time. I lived on site too at Concord when we, when we did Concord. Um, I lived and breathed that job for, you know, almost nine to 10 months straight. 
Well, let's, uh, and there's been, I want to come back to Concords. Tell us a few more because that was a few years ago now. Where else have you been? And that was back in the time when you were in New South Wales. You're now in Queensland, I should point that out. Yep. Um, what have you been working on in the last couple of years? And it has been, no doubt, difficult with COVID as well, I'm sure. Yeah, difficult with COVID. Um, we were fortunate enough. We did, a, we did a stint up at in Townsville for a little bit um, with another competitor of ours. We gave up, went up there and gave them a hand. Um, and then we moved to Brisbane and decided to relocate to Brisbane uh, just on four years ago now, which has been one of the best moves we've ever done. I've been fortunate enough to do the last six holes at Mullaney Golf Club, which is in one of the most picturesque mountaintops um, you'll ever visit. Um, and then from there, we did some stuff at um, last year. We did stage one at Hope Island. Um, that was a also- very good. Very good improvements there. I think for the, um, you know, the the new par three across the water there, hole nine. Yeah, it was an amazing one, and another another little nine hole par three golf course we built and maintained for a short period of time was up at Ely Beach. Um, we did a golf course coming into Cannon Hill there. Uh, oh, sorry, Cannonvale. Sorry, it was. Um, oh yeah. And then we've been we did a bit of stuff at Ash Ashgrove Golf Club last year on some fairways out there. Um, and then we're looking to go back into stage two over at Hope Island in the coming months and get that get that all nice and done and dusted and tidied up out there. Wow, that's impressive. There's some good names of places there and certainly some beautiful parts of the world, Ely Beach. I mean, who doesn't want to be near the Sundays? No, nah, it's great. <laughs> so we're really – last couple of months we've been hammering down really hard and working on some big tenders up here in, in Queensland as some of our other competitors have been as well. So – we're hoping in the coming months we might get some positive news around those ones, but there's some pretty big works going up on up here at a few golf clubs in the in the coming months. So um, hopefully we can be a part of them. But like I said, yeah, key focus is uh, stage two at Hope Island, and then uh, moving on from there. Mate, well, fingers crossed you um, you do get you know a, a couple of one or more of those um, you know possible future projects uh, approved, and that'd be great to see. Well, no doubt I'll keep uh, keep in touch with you and find out where those will be if you do get them, mate. Uh, we touched on Concord, and I want to go back to that and uh, we'll try and discuss a little bit about that. That was a to anyone, we just now finished the New South Wales Open was just held at Concord and, and what was it, four years ago or something, five years ago, it was fully redesigned in effect by Renaissance Golf and Tom Doak, which is a big deal here in New South Wales. Not a lot, uh, really much work of, of Tom Doak has been done in New South Wales. There's a lot been done in Victoria and around Melbourne and uh, and certainly in Tassie. So, mate, tell us what, that was a full 18 holes, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, that was crazy. We did uh, nine holes in just on three months and another nine holes in three months after that it was it was full on so was were you i'm gonna ask because i don't know some details so were you the the principal contractor to do the renaissance golf tom doke redesign at concord is that what you were there for you weren't the second you know tier or anything you it was you it was golf spectrum uh, mark parker had a, had a vision to always keep it in an in-house project so we were employed directly by the club to to go in there and help out Okay. Um, I was heavily involved working alongside um, Brian Slonick at the time um, with his shaping and everything that involved around that. Mark Parker also had a massive crew of, of 20 of his own staff in there that were bouncing around doing all types of golf course construction things. And then we also had a, a, a lad in there um, from Fleming's at the time as well. He was he was heavily involved in all the bunker works out there. So 
Um, it was a congregation of, you know, a lot of parties that put together, but I worked really closely and alongside um, their head their head shaper that they'd sent out. Um, and I did a lot of work out there uh, in and around the greens, um, shaping up a lot of things and, you know, trying to also prove my value to the dope guys and show them what we're all about and how we do things. They, you know, they didn't, they weren't big believers in some of the things that, you know, machines that we use to move around the golf course and do things. But, you know, we showed them how it was done. Mate, and, and that's a that's a big deal, a big name, a big project, and certainly one of the um, premier golf courses in Sydney. Concord's got a, a wonderful history, steeped in history. In fact, one of the oldest golf courses in the country, and it or go, oldest golf clubs, I should say, in the country, and and it has an extremely high expectation of delivering a golf course at the end of the day. This was a big difficult button for concord to press and get right for their members like i said they have a big expectation and to do 18 holes in that big team to work cohesively in six months are you for real yeah it's it was a task and it was it was a challenge and we got there in the end but there was a lot of long days uh, like i said i lived on site so i pretty much lived and breathed that project for the whole duration apart from you know christmas break so um, yeah, we got it. We got it done in that time frame. On you know, some days it's a hindrance that we did do that, that fast, and it was done that fast because a lot of people that know that we were involved in that. You know, when you walk in now and tell them it's going to take three times as long to do something, they'll go, "How come when you did Concord, it didn't didn't take that long?" But you don't always have a crew of forty or or whatever to take around with you and do those types of things. So that was, you know, that's the the niche type of project that was and. Uh, and and the people that Mark you know was able to pull together as well you know being a very established and well known fella in the industry down there in New South Wales I mean he's you know got a lot of powers and and stuff at his disposal so he was able to pull that together um, really well and I'm I'm fortunate that you know I was one of the key guys that he leaned on um, on that project. Well, look, Mark Parker, anyone in, in the greenkeeping industry knows or has heard of Mark Parker, an extremely well-respected superintendent in the industry and a stalwart of the industry who's now over at New South Wales Golf Club, like you mentioned earlier. And uh, he was at Concord, I think, for some 28 or 30 years or some enormous length of time. Um, but if he was running that project in a sense and, and pulling all those people together and uh, look, the product at the end, I was fortunate to get a chance and an opportunity to play that golf course, I think, a, a six months or a year after it opened. And it is absolutely incredible what was done. And I'm looking at the amount of work that you guys had done to get to that stage so fast. It's absolutely astonishing and how well it was completed. It's incredible. And the design of Doak and what they've done for their membership there, it's, it's that everything was done so very well. What a project to be part of, mate. Oh, it was unbelievable. Uh, but one of the you know most rewarding experiences as a business owner to have myself and the key guys that worked for our company at the time um, involved in that project. And it'll be for one that I'll ever remember. Mate, I, um, I'm thinking about you working with, you know, one of the most prolific and well-known golf course architects in the world now doing a, a, a project at Concord. What was that like? I've got to ask. I've got to ask because I, I love my architecture. Did you get to meet Tom? You work with Brian and, and I know that he's done a lot of work in Australia, but did you get to see and meet Tom at all? Nah, mate, we'll kept it at arm's length. <laughs> sometimes I, sometimes you start wanted to feel it. Those, those guys like Brian feel a bit threatened about, you know, your skill sets and stuff and whether you'll 
you know, it'd be better than them and Tom might give you a job. So, no, we were kept at arm's length when Tom visited, but it wasn't, you know, anything that we were able to get, you know, up there and meet, and that was just kept to the seclusive people. <laughs> no, but I, I had to ask. I didn't think I, – I don't know how often he was actually out here for that – that project i know he was behind some of those things but and in part with the project but yeah like you mentioned brian slornick was there and and um you know but what a like i said before what a what an incredible project is that do you see those opportunities you know do we have those opportunities with with some of the you know i suppose now we hear about seven mile happening in tassie what other sort of big golf course projects are they floating around in the background that that may or may not come off do you hear about these fleeting you know ideas and and concepts happening in the background is that part of your business you've got to have your ear to the ground uh yeah you do hear about them sometimes but sometimes by the time you've heard about them it's too late um a lot of those projects that you know you are that, are that big and that wider scale like that guys have been involved with them for a long period of time uh they you know, other contractors or other shapers. There's a fair few guys now that float around with their own internal shapers like Ogilvy and Clayton and things like that. So it's a little bit of a hard thing to crack, um, you know, with guys where they're, they're making themselves more in-house and self-sufficient. So, yeah. um, you know, it's the major tenders that get released out um, that you sort of hear about a lot easier um, and, or, you know, just being on the, the coal face of the, you know, the cold calling and things like that is, is helps a lot too. But, um, you know, golf projects dwindle. They're, they're few and far between, really, when you think about it at the end of the day. Uh, you know, golf was really struggling there before COVID, but it seems like it really picked up during the COVID period. And, um, you know, golf clubs now are starting to be able to be a little bit cashed up, but they're, they're sort of holding on to those reserves. Um, so your projects are a little bit few and far between sometimes. Uh, and and um, you know they are that, and I suppose that, like you said, clubs are being more conscious. General managers are you know advising boards that you know not to make rash decisions and and spend that money. Keep certainly some reserves there for the for the rainy days. As you know, I don't know if anyone can hear this in the background. It's absolutely teeming here in Sydney where I am on the beaches. It's coming down again. It's come from up north once again. A lot of people are copying it, but. In effect, that these waves of golf, you know, and making money in clubs will come and go, and you need to be aware of that, and you need to be strategic in how you spend money and improving, you know, your asset out there on the golf course that people come to play. That they're being conscious about it, but it's about we'll go back to before, you know, if you're going to do it, you know, be conscious of those working relationships and and who you're going to deal with, and and uh, make those, you know, think about those decisions at length, but. Um, you know, certainly hearing your story, mate, and the where you've come from in golf, understanding the greenkeeping and maintenance side, and you know, doing projects all the way up from small all the way up to a place like Concord, you've got a great wealth of experience. And I mean, I don't know, does your team change a little bit in size? Does it go up and down as you get projects? Yeah, it does, especially around the golf course stuff. But right now, our civil division it's running fifteen staff at the moment, so. Um, you know, that, that's a big undertaking in any, in any type of business. Um, we have almost 15, 20 machines at our disposal at the moment. Um, our own fleet in itself is around 12. Um, we have a lot of machinery that we have, um, at, at our disposal to, you know, draw hire out or cross hire and things like that in our other side of our business. So we're fortunate enough to have a good solid, um, you know, employee background there. 
um, where we can pull and pull from project to project if needed. But, you know, shaping-wise at the moment, I, I have a few guys that come and subby into me to help me out when I need it. But I, I spend a lot of my time on the ground on my golf projects. I make sure that, you know, I'm on the ground a lot. I've got my fingers and, and my handprints all over every project that we do. And I think that's a service that I can offer that not too many can. Uh, and I think that's what's, you know, kept me in good stead for the, you know, the projects I have won. And, and you know, we talk about the places you've worked and then there's people connected to that. Someone you mentioned, like Mark Parker, knows and understands your background and, and what you can deliver. So there's points of contact for golf clubs and, and committees and boards to do a bit of research, to see who they're dealing with, to contact places that projects have been done to get that level of understanding of your experience. And, I'm, mate, I'm going to blow smoke up your ass because I can. I've seen it. I've, I've seen it hands-on. And, and know that, you know, if, if anyone's going to go out there and, and, and look at work being done, you know, you're someone that they can look into and, and look about where, where can we find your details, mate? Tell us, you know, have you got a website? How does it work? Yeah, well, our, our main website is www.golfspectrum.com.au and you can find us on Instagram. You can find us on um, Facebook. You can find our other business on Instagram and Facebook, which is uh, capital E, capital N, capital S contracting. That's ENS contracting. Um, that's another business I have and that I've built up over over my time in, you know, being able to be fortunate enough to do that as well, um, you know, and that that's going along nice and swimming as well. So yeah, you can find us on all those socials at the moment. I'm not too big on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, I'm always putting up posts. I'm always, you know, on those, those forums like Facebook and Instagram, but our our website is, you know, definitely there for people to go and take a look at. We've been getting a lot of traffic through there recently with some inquiries, um, especially after the storms and the floods. So yeah, even if it's just a simple, come out, have a coffee, catch up and maybe give you some ideas on, on a direction to, you know, you want to look in We've we've done, we do that in the past as well. There's, there's nothing that we won't entertain. Uh, and that's good to know that. And the other thing, and I've spoken at length with with Harley Cruz uh, from Cruz Golf about, you know, that <clears throat> pardon me, that people like golf course architects and, and construction companies. It's not you guys don't just do a Concord. This is the important thing I think golf clubs need to understand that you're accessible to to talk about and consider smaller projects. It might be. A, a one you know green complex or it might be a rebuilding of a tea or something you know that that you're open to a conversation to to talk about with with people yeah we are and i think one key thing for our business is our overheads are still fairly minimal even though you know what i rattled off before is is a, is a decent sized fleet um so we're able to to look at just those one greens here one greens there and we we, we enjoy that a lot more um, coming in and, and molding something that was built, you know, in the 1900s or whatever, and bringing it into the 21st century, and given that 21st century style and flair, and you know, upgrading it. You know, the key thing that golf clubs need to remember too is, you know, they might only have a vision to build one, but sometimes it's a lot better to build three or four, and it becomes more cost effective. For sure, absolutely. And if they've got that idea of doing, you know, four over the next four or five years, by the time you guys have a discussion, it could well be that you're going to save a significant amount of cash if you do it all while you're there in one in one smaller project all together. Yeah, because um, you're buying in bulk. You know, you're getting things in bulk. You, you know, it cuts your costs down. You know, and you're there. You're not paying establishment fees every time you come backwards and forwards and things like that. So. Um, 
yeah, definitely a lot. Some sometimes it's a hard sell, but you know if they can consider it, it, it definitely works out better for them in the long run. Absolutely, mate. Always, always good to to listen to the options and consider where things are at, mate. And and I, I suppose I, I go back to and I'm thinking about it as we're talking. I still go back to, you know, being a shaper. If anyone's interested in in moving towards this and and working with contractors, if they've got a golf background, it's it is quite diverse. It's not just sitting in the cab of an excavator day in, day out. There's a lot of diversity in the role. There's a lot of different things you can get your hands on and certainly a lot of different experience that you'll gain on different machinery, different sites, different jobs, different people, different environments, different products to deliver at the end of the day what you're building. It, it really, it, it's it's a lot. It's almost a lifestyle, a bit like green keeping is, but you're going to experience a great deal of stuff, aren't you? You are, and, and, and you can take that into the all realms of earth moving. And let me tell you, you know, we picked up a lot of work out there in the civil game because, you know, we're known, we've been known for a long time as Golf Spectrum. Um, now we've got obviously the second business, which I mentioned before, but, you know, when they see Golf Spectrum and, and they see a machine coming in from our fleet that's well-maintained and well-looked after, and then they go, oh, that guy builds golf courses, his detail and execution must be really good, you know, and they, and they got him on a machine and, that, and that's won us a lot of work in, in the other areas of earth moving as well, that that expertise that you, you and those fine-tuning skills that you pick up, you know, benefits us in the long run on other projects. Mate, it's um, it's so good to hear that you're still passionate. I love you. I love hearing about your background and certainly learning more about that during this conversation. It's been really exciting, mate, and and to hearing your story about where you've come from, where you've been overseas at Oakmont and and the Open and and all these sorts of things when you were younger and and getting your hands on it. One of the best courses in southwestern Sydney at Macquarie Links and. And now, you know, you've got your hands on quite a number of courses, be it Concord or Hope or Eastern or wherever, like you mentioned. But you, you've certainly been to a lot of places and done a lot of work on courses throughout Australia. And, and those are established courses with some really good names, mate. So, look, Nathan, I, I certainly hope it's been insightful to a lot of our listeners. It's been great having you on the podcast and having a yarn about all these projects. And, and look, I can say it because I can. It's me, um, you know, that that if anyone's interested, you should get in touch with Nathan. You've just heard about his background. So um, why not consider him if you're looking at doing work on a golf course? Um, I think you'd be well-versed to uh, to certainly make a, a phone call or get in touch with Nathan. So, mate, thank you for bringing that story out and certainly all of your experience. It's um, one that I'm sure people will enjoy. I certainly have, and, and I really do appreciate your time. No, I really appreciate the opportunity, Steve. Like not many people do know the ins and outs and, and that behind us guys, you know, that start these companies and, and do what we do. So it's really nice for hopefully them to get a bit of an understanding that we're just, yeah, not some guy that's just, you know, started a company and brought a couple of machines and is going for it. We, you know, we've got a true to tested knowledge in, in the whole industry. Indeed, mate, and quality of product at the end is the biggest thing. And this is about how golf courses come to be, what we all go out there and enjoy at the end of the day, you know, using people like you to get it all started. So, mate, I appreciate your time again and um, all the best with Golf Spectrum in the future. Certainly uh, the project, I'll, like I said, I'll be keeping tabs on you about hope and, and hopefully hearing about some other new projects in the future, mate. So thank you very much, Nathan. Thanks, Steve. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Bradbury from Golf Spectrum. Well, guys, like, please, please like, share, subscribe, and pass it around. Don't forget to pass this podcast 
on to anyone you know who might be interested in these sorts of conversations, information, uh, you know, good stories. Hopefully you're enjoying them and you know people who also might want to come on and listen as well. So please pass it around. I do appreciate it and subscribe. Click that subscribe button to ensure that when new episodes come out of the podcast, you'll get a push notification so that uh, you don't miss them and you can stay up to date with them. I try and get them out every week. That's my goal. Usually pretty good with that. And I appreciate you taking the time out to listen. As always, guys, you hit them clean. We'll keep them green. Have yourselves a lovely weekend, and I'll catch up with you next week.